to the presentation today. Now, isn't it been a blessing to have a blend of, what are we looking for here in this, in this conference? Inspiration and instruction, right? A blend. In other words, when you leave, you can't have too much of one and, and too, too little of the other, right? you got to have something to take home that you can do, that, that you can do, right? So it was in that vein of thinking that was uh, recently uh, reintroduced to me that last night the Lord saw fit to allow me to have back pain all night. Can you say amen? amen. So I could not sleep. Amen? So I was able to put together actually some new slides for today's lecture. Hallelujah. Amen? Right, so right after this, I'll probably die of exhaustion, but at least it's good for you folks, all right? Now, if you should happen to want some of these slides, um, good luck. But what I'm going to do with them is put them up on the website, my website, at afco.com, and it'll be under the director's materials, that's me. And so you will, you will find those. Now, I did three presentations here, one on the heart. That was the least attended but the most important presentation that the Lord made to me personally here at Army. And I would recommend that you, you really uh, watch that, listen to it on Audioverse, whatever you want to do. That's probably the most important. And then the one that I did just before lunch was probably the, the, the second most important, and this is the third. So the, any of them is the top three, okay? So just recommend you to go to the site and get those. I ask in that heart presentation, what makes a good preacher? What do you think makes a good preacher? How many think there are good preachers, first of all? Not as many as I would have liked. What makes a good preacher? I was amazed to find this, this quotation. No minister should be measured by his ability as a speaker. So maybe you all are out there saying, well, I want to go to that church. I want to do this and do that because I think that speaker's good. And I've measured his ability and that's why I'm going there. But no minister should be measured by his ability as a speaker. Why not? Look at this next thing. And by the way, we're going to talk about preaching here. So I'm putting it in perspective. Because it is the pleasant part of the work and is comparatively easy. How many think that's good news? It's comparatively easy. Can you say hallelujah? It's comparatively easy. So you're not to measure people by that. You know, I absolutely happen to think that there are entire ministries that are built around this when this is not the metric God wants. Right? Um... So why not? What is the measure? Here is the measure. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Look, if this army conference, you did just one simple thing, and that was to give God your heart, that would be the most important thing, and that would make you the most effective. And that's probably what we should spend the most time about at army. Because it is the most effective. I, you don't have to know much if you've given God your heart. In fact, you don't, even, you don't even have to even be able to speak. And God can use you if you've given him your heart. Do you believe that? 
I had a teacher in school, and they all had problems with me. I don't know what was wrong with this teacher. <laughs> and, you know, but this one teacher, she really had, she really got to my heart. God got to her heart. She would just look at me. She'd just look at me. And then I'd start to cry. Because <laughs> the way she looked at me, I just did not want to displease her. She didn't say anything, but that lady was connected with God. How many want to have that kind of connection? Where <laughs> you're so connected with God, you just look at people and they just go, How can I join your church? <laughs> Amen? Amen? Amen. So, look at this one. He has preached excellent discourses. So here's someone that's preaching excellent discourses. I mean, they, everything I'm about to teach you, they learn. But out of the desk, he hasn't carried out the principles he preached. This kind of work is an offense to God. So you can actually be an excellent preacher and be offensive to God. In fact, more offensive. And look at this one. He can talk fluently and make a point plain, but his preaching has lacked spirituality. He has an array of words. Have you had people that pride themselves on the big words they use when they preach? Array of words. It doesn't matter if God doesn't have the heart, if the Spirit's not with them, right? So if you, if you miss everything else, if you miss the rest of this lecture, that's the most important thing. Our first work should be to bring our hearts in harmony with God. Sure, preaching is the, the, the God's ordain, ordained means to bring the gospel to people, right? But if our heart's not with God, doesn't matter. Amen? So that's, that's, I mean, if you get that, I mean, I'm not saying you can leave now, but I mean, that's, that's the big thing. Now, having that, in mind, then I do want to talk about preaching, the comparatively easy part of the work. And by the way, preaching is, by the way, just like a Bible study. So the same thing you do in a Bible study, you, when you're doing a Bible study, you're doing like a Nicodemus per sermon. The woman at the well, the one-on-ones. And by the way, any preaching, preaching is, by the way, Ellen White says, is only 10% of the work. 90% of the work is coming close to the people you preach to and doing a Nicodemus-type Bible study with them. So what you're learning right now at Army, if you're learning, well, look, I just want to learn how to study the Word and share the Word, it's the same thing a preacher needs to know how to do. And, um, <laughs> by the way, when you become a bishop, it says in the Bible, I, I read through all Timothy last night, too, because I had some time to kill. Um, <laughs> when you become a bishop, it's defined by your ability in the Greek tenses of the word to love visitation. That means a true preacher is one who loves not just articulation, but loves visitation. And they love people to come to their homes. They love that. That is the sign of a true preacher. Did you know that? That's what the Greek tenses mean. So, a, measure should, a, a preacher should never be measured. You should never be measured by your ability as a speaker. But how does God measure you? By your heart. And how is your heart revealed? In your personal interactions one-on-one -on -one and with people. And by the way, it's also by tithe pay. Amen? It's where your money is, where your heart is also. And we'll take up an offering right now. So anyway, 
pre-work, I'm a preacher, I had to say that, the pre-work of preaching and teaching, uncovering, exposing the truth of the text. This is the part of the sermon you never see. But every preacher is blood, sweat, and tears getting to that message that morning. There is no truly just gifted speaker who gets up and they just have the gift of speaking. That does not happen. They have things in their life that have led to them to be able to articulate in a certain way. And they have done, if they're a good Bible expository, it's just simply hard, hard work. If you have a good preacher, praise God for that, but know that they are working hard or listening to audio verse. I don't know which. Um, and they're hoping and praying you don't go to the internet. So, but whoever it was that originated that message was working hard, and you can praise God for them, amen? So let's look there at, at this. And I thought today we would take a text and then we would kind of build a sermon together in a practical study way, and I hope no one, you know, yawns or goes to sleep. Amen, brother? <laughs> Brother's on the front row and he yawned. Can you say amen for that? All right. 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You therefore, my son, you can read it with me. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many think that's an army text? So the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses... Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, how would we go about getting into the meat of this text? Three questions we'd ask. Number one, and you might want to write these questions down, and you might not, depending. If you didn't even bring you know, a notepad with you, and you're nodding off in the front row, you might not want to do that. What is the biblical author saying? In other words, what is the main idea not to point out any names, um, what is the main idea of the text that you're studying? But if you could get a camera on him, it would help us, okay? What is the biblical author saying? What's the main idea of the text that you're studying? So you ask that question first. What's he trying to say? What's he trying to say? And then you need to be able to, to build a, te- a sentence that's looking kind of past tense at that passage you're considering that scripture, and uh, it's interpreting what the text meant in the original context. In other words, when it was first given. That's the very first thing you do. So let's try that with our text. What is happening here? You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, these commit also to faithful men who are able to teach others also. What's he trying to say? What's that sentence? I'll, I'll show you what I came up with, my little sentence. Timothy needed to be strong in God's grace so he could pass along what Paul had told him to tell others, and they could also pass it along to others. How many think that's a pretty much a summary statement? And it's a past tense thing. That's what he wanted to do. So you come up with that first. What was the biblical author saying? Number two, why is the biblical author saying it? What was he saying? Why is he saying it? Someone turned off some, don't turn off the lights, brothers. These people are already nodding here in the front. Okay, why is the biblical author saying this? Why is that? You see, the answer to this will reveal the author's main purpose to you. 
And you have to ask that question. What did he say? Why did he say it? This also should be another concise statement you can come up with indicating what the author is attempting to do. And that's largely found in a larger context, right? You need sometimes to look at the larger context. You know, for instance, if you look at the phrase in the Bible, there is no God. It does say that in the Bible. Doesn't it say that? Have you ever read that? And then you just took that. How many think you need a larger context for that? What's the larger context? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Amen? So that larger context will sometimes help you understand. Why would the Bible say there is no God? Why? Because there's fools out there. Amen? All the fools are out there. Amen? None in here. By the way, there are seven different types of fool in the Bible. Did you know that? My father studied this with me intensely as I was growing up. <laughs> and uh, I have been a sevenfold fool, so it's good to be a seventh-day Adventist and also to understand that nuance. So, um, there from our text, you therefore be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the thing you've heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who are able to teach others also. What is, why is he saying that? Why is this author saying that? As I read through First and Second Timothy, as I read then further through the pastoral epistles, as I read then through the New Testament, I then comes to this conclusion. Why is he saying it? Because Paul is about to die. And he urgently desires that Timothy would take over his preaching mantle and that he would be faithful to what God had given Paul that he had given to him. He'd be faithful to the Word of God. This is why. Yes or no? You don't know. You didn't study the text maybe. But here's just some corroborating text. 2 Timothy 4, 6. I am ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight, finished my course, I've kept the faith, but now I need to commit that faith to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right? So, in other words, I've answered that question, why? The biblical author is saying it. What is he saying? Why is he saying it? Are these helpful questions? How is the biblical author saying it? Is that an important thing? Why is it important? You're all nodding. I can't even do that anymore with my neck. I can't not. I have to do the whole like this. It's like a spinal fusion, you know? How? By the lumbar's working though, isn't it? Not the, not the cervicals, but the lumbar spine's still working. How is the biblical author saying it? Is that important? Is that important? To answer this question is to look at the literary genre of the text. Now you're saying, oh, genre, I'm dead, I'm asleep, I'm gone, gone. No, but there are different things in the Bible, different ways things are said. Like this is in the pastoral epistles. There are certain ways things are said in the pastoral epistles. He'll always start out with the doctrinal type things, and then he moves to the practical application. There's a certain way he goes about things. You need to understand that when you're preaching from those. But there's also other areas in the Bible. There's narrative text. And we have an English professor actually on the front row who is just loving this. I see his, he's salivating. Because he just loves this. It says code number nine, something on his shirt. He's just into it. Narrative. There's poetry. There's wisdom. There's law. There's prophecy. There's apocalyptic. There's gospels. There's parables. There's epistles. And sometimes there's different nuances. You don't just read a parable like you read a narrative. Yes or no? Or no. Either way, right? So you could say yes or no. You could be right. That's the beauty of my teaching here today. So, with those above, with those above 
Look, this is the hard work of preaching, and we've got to spice it up a bit so you're with me still. This is after lunch, after Ivor said uh, such, such inspiring things that I have to, to be with you here on the nitty-gritty. You know, everything he did to prepare that message we're talking about here right now. With the above in mind, the following steps should then be considered. Stage one, pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance. And I can't, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. God, who, who, who lives, gives liberally and what? Upbraideth not. In other words, he won't, he, he's going he's gonna to help you out if you ask. Amen? And sometimes, and not just for you, because he wants to help the people that are, he's going to reach through you. This is why it's good to preach and teach and different things because he wants to help those people and he knows what they need and if you make yourself available, you get to learn it too. You're like a hitchhiker, amen? A divine hitchhiker. You're like, oh man, I'm just here to learn too. And you really are, yes or no. Stage two, analyze the larger context. Like I said, the fool is said in his heart, but then, uh, you know, like I said. Reading and studying the larger book context as well as the section and immediate contact. This is why it's hard work. Don't just think, I'll wake up Sabbath morning and put together a message that's coherent. Right? You're not going to do that. Unless it's maybe that's, you know, Psalm 133 or 132 or one of those like one phrase psalms. And even then, you're supposed to see how that psalm matches with the Pentateuch. Because like I told you about three times now, there were five books of the Pentateuch and there were five sections to the psalms. And your idea is to figure out how that psalm relates to the Pentateuch, what story goes with it, what's the context, what was being sung, what was happening with the sanctuary, all that. You're not going to do that Sabbath morning before your little postum and tofu. Or tofu and postum, however you do it. So reading and studying the larger book context is important. So reading, reading, and rereading. You know, sometimes before I preach a sermon, I will have read the, the book 30, 40 times. I listen to it in the car. I put it on my iPod, my tripod, my dipod. I put it everywhere. I'm listening to the text. I'm soaking. I'm marinating. I'm not laminating, but I'm, I'm, I'm in the text. Amen? And I am able to quote the text. I can say the text. I'm memorizing the text. I need to know the text. Right? And the context. Um, because the last thing I want to do is get up there and tell someone something that's wrong. Because this is God's work. It's His Word. They don't want to hear me. They want to hear Him, right? So how do you do this? Analyzing the historical, cultural context is next of the passage. You would do that using Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias. How many have them sitting around the house? You should if you don't. And you can't get everything on the internet these days, you know, because now people have figured out they want to make some money, so they still find a way to charge you. In fact, I might mention that out there on the tables, all the tables are charging for things except for the Amazing Facts table. Can you say amen to that? It's all free. Amen? So Bible dictionaries, I, I'm sorry I even said that. I really am. It wasn't part of my presentation. I don't know where it came from. So uh, Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias are important things to have. And I'll give you a list of those later. Uh, commentaries, like the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary and others. I would not recommend, I would recommend the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary to everybody in terms of historical context. They did a great job on that. There are different, like, primo, primal commentaries that go with different books. 
And if you care to ask me, I probably won't remember, but I can get you a list I've compiled. My library, by the way, if you would come to my library, you would probably clean it up first. But once you looked at it, you would say, man, there's this kind of a rhyme to this. You know how my library is organized? It's a Revelation 1 library. Because in Revelation 1, all the major doctrines of the Adventist church are listed. Scripture, salvation, second coming, Sabbath sanctuary, state of the dead, spirit of prophecy, and the saints of the church. All eight of them right there. That's how my library is organized. I walk in, scriptures, salvation, second coming. I just sit there and I go, whoa, I am a revelation one moment. So analyze the historical cultural context of the passage using these Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias. I just put up here uh, Biblos. Uh, Biblos.com, just as an example, has all kinds of things you can get free on the internet. I just, uh, I even got it here last night, make a, put a screenshot at around uh, 2.30 in the morning, 1.42, maybe put the screenshot up there for you so you can look at it. And you can get, these are free maps. I mean, I got these right here at Leone just with the click of a Macintosh computer mouse. It felt so good. So, and right there is where Paul lived in Ephesus, and they told all about it. And of course, I mean, Timothy was in Ephesus. Did I say Paul? Paul's friend Timothy was in Ephesus. And Paul was living where? In Rome, and he was about to be poured out as a drink offering, we just learned. So what was the historical context? Who was the person in charge of Rome at that time? Nero and Agrippina was his mother. And there's quite a story that goes with that that might make the epistle come alive to you. Do you know the story? You see, Agrippina here, she's looked better, but anyway... What's left of her? She was, she was Caligula's sister. How many of you know who Caligula was? I don't want to get into it, but he was a very base guy. In fact, he ran brothels all around Rome. And guess who ran those brothels? Agrippina. But they had a falling out, and she got uh, sent away from the country. But how, somehow, uh, you know, she came back. And when she came back, Caligula was off the scene. And she had little... Little Nero, right? Because she married, um, she married Claudius. Let me just put you, I'll show you the, the, the summary I, I wrote out of the historical context. You want to see that? Because I preached this text not so long ago. The image of Rome was largely invested in the personage of one man, the emperor, and it had gone from bad to worse to horrendous. Who was that one man? Nero. When did he live? 54 A.D. He became emperor through the promotion of his mother Agrippina, Caligula's sister. She was in charge of his brothels. When Nero's father died, she married Claudius the emperor, not because she loved him, but because she loved his power. However, when the time was most advantageous, and when, his, in other words, when Britannicus, his actual son, was of age, she then poisoned Claudius with his favorite food. Watch out, guys! Mushrooms. And she served in the mushrooms, and he died. And this allowed Nero to have a straight shot to the, th the throne. Even though she had been out of the country, now he came back and he goes to the throne. He became emperor at 17. Now look, his father was so violent that one time he ripped a horse's eye out of his head. And his mother was in charge of brothels. And his stepfather, he did heinous things as well. Then look in Timothy, in your mind, in your mind's eye, 2 Timothy. I know the faith that was in you, Timothy, which was first in your mother, Lois, and in your grandmother, Eunice. It's a 
parallel of genealogies here. Someone that came from a terrible situation, someone that came from an ideal situation, someone who at 17 was probably the worst possible person that you could be at 17, and someone who was at 17 was the best possible person who had been in charge of the ministry at a very young age. Never usually bequeathed on anybody who was their age 40. Can you see how the book's coming alive? Because of the historical context. He lived, Nero did, a life of excess and became an embarrassment to his, the empire. When his mother lost his, her grip on him, by the way, she was abusing him mentally and physically and sexually. He feared she would kill him, so he arranged to have her killed by designing a ship that would sink with her in it. That's a pretty expensive way to get rid of your mother, but that's what he did. To his horror, everyone was killed in the boat except her, and she swam to shore. And he was watching her, and as he was watching her swim to shore, he was terrified and sent the assassins and had to go himself and make sure his mother was killed. When he did this, he turned almost insane, and he became even more erratic. He went out at night and would run up and down the streets, and he would murder, and he would rape, and he would pillage, even though he was the emperor. He had a love for the stage. He believed it had the gift of singing. A problem was no one had the gift of listening. And so he went outside of the country and he went to Greece and he went to other places and he would sing and he would act. And guess what? They, they, then he came back and he built an arch of triumph. All the others built them for military pursuits, but he built it because he could sing and he was an embarrassment to Rome. Nothing against the music majors here, but it didn't cut it when your military leader, the army leader, comes back and says, I sang a sonnet for the, for the Greeks and they love me. He would lock people in theaters, play various parts, and if you went to sleep, like Vespabian, who would eventually become emperor, he almost got killed for going to sleep. <laughs> I might apply this message, brother. Anyway, so... <laughs> All right. He went to foreign countries to act and sing. He came back and he built that arch, and they were sick of him. He was an embarrassment. In 64, he was accused of burning Rome and playing a liar, a leer on the hill as it happened. There were no violins back then, so that's an apocryphal story. He needed a scapegoat, and there was a man who was named Christos, first time mentioned in the literature. His name was Jesus, and that sect had died out under Pontius Pilate, but came back, and he said, I will use them as my scapegoat. He oversaw the killing of Christians, which by this time he was very good at knowing how to kill. And as a result, Christians were taken advantage of in the provinces, which is exactly what happened with Alexander the coppersmith who turned Paul in. And it was in this setting that Timothy, Paul's protege, receives a letter from Paul. How many of you have been excited to receive a letter from Paul? No, you wouldn't have. Because if you went to the mailbox and people found out it was from Paul, he was on death row, and you were associated with enemy number one. And it's in that setting that he says to Timothy, fight the good faith, be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit to others, who will be able to teach others also. It was in that setting when he was about to die and Timothy could die if he was known to have even opened the mail that he was saying, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, convince, rebuke. 
Can you understand how the historical context opens up the meaning? You see what I mean? Now that took a long time to learn all that stuff. But does it pay off? Because now you're knowing why he said what he said. You're reading, oh, preach the word. No. To preach the word was an incendiary political act. Paul was being killed for that. His legal counsel had left him. He had to adjudicate his own case. Demas forsake him for this present world. Do you see what I'm saying? How many can see how the historical context brings things alive? So, historical context, very important. Analyze then the passage in detail. This is hard work. You can't go to sleep on this. No, no, you can't be twiddling your thumbs. You have got to analyze the passage here, and this is where you're looking for, like, treasure, the grammar, the syntax of the passage, and you go, well, I don't like grammar. <laughs> well, uh, it probably doesn't like you either, but do as well as you can with whatever tools. Some of you are at different levels with that, but do the best you can. In AFCO, I realize that we're not theologically trained with Greek and Hebrew there, so I say, look, you have to come up with 50 truths and proofs from every single text. You have to tell me this passage, all these truths from the passage and the proof of it, and then out of that, find what you're going to talk about in your sermon. The grammar and syntax, word studies, diagramming, the end result is an articulation of the exegetical idea and purpose of the passage as well as an outline. So at the same time you're coming up with all these words mean, you're thinking about how could I organize this? How could I outline it? How many can see that this is hard work? It's hard work. But it's the same work you do for a Bible study, yes or no? Uh, the sermon is just a Bible study with a bunch of people. Isn't it? You don't get good at a Bible study, you won't probably get at a sermon. Uh, Solomon said, Here I, here's what I found, said the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason. I like the NLT, New Living Translation. This is my conclusion, says the teacher. I came to this result after looking into the matter from every possible angle. You know, I don't care what message I'm preaching or what presentation I'm giving, even this one. I'm always working right up to the end. And I always go, oh, 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 wait a minute, I didn't know this. Oh, mm, 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 mm. By the time you get up front or you have your Bible study, you should know 800 times as much as the person you're talking to. Right? So I use this particular computer program called Accordance. You can get a cheap version like uh, Peter Gregory has. <laughs> Just kidding, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. You're not supposed to laugh at your own jokes. But he told me that he got the package for 500 bucks or whatever. Maybe that's not cheap for you. Um, but someone, I didn't buy this, a physician friend of mine who will remain nameless because you'll come up and mob me and ask him to do the same for you. He bought me this program with all the bells and whistles and all this stuff because I think he wanted to hear good sermons. Amen? Mm -hmm. He says, you need some help. Same guy when I was first in his church, he got a video camera. He says, you might want to look at this. <laughs> which was not a compliment, right? So he was trying to help me. I had my homiletics class right there in the church. So you go into the passage, as you can notice that I have the passage up here. Be strong in the grace, the things which you have uh, learned from me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men able to teach others. Then I have it in the Greek, so I can search that in the Greek if I want to. And you don't have to know Greek to search in Greek and all that. You don't even have to be Greek. And then I have it in the NASB here, the New American Standard Version, right? 
because that's the most accurate to the text in English, most accurate. And so I like that. I want to see what that says. Then I have a couple commentaries open here. I don't look at them right away, but I have them there. I have got all kinds of translations along the side if I want to do that. I want to look at the New Living Translation or different things. I can go down all of those and get the nuance, usually five or six translations when I'm studying a text. Does that make sense? So then I say to this text, well, wait a minute. Thou therefore, I'll look up every word that's of significance. Now therefore, my son, be strong. I go, wait a minute. What's that mean to be strong? Does that mean the same thing as it means in English, that means in Greek, what is that? So I click on that, and I say, okay, strong. I want to know what that means. I click on it, and then comes up the word in Greek, indunamo, which means to empower, to enable. But then I see here that there's these two, uh, these, there's, there's these two numbers here that it's made up from, indunamano, right? And I say, wait a minute, I want to look at this, what this means. And so I look it up. Dunamo. And then you look that up, it comes from dunamis, which means powerful, right? And so I'm doing that. I do that with every single word, and I'm looking it up, and I'm, I'm, I'm learning what I can learn. And if I think it's interesting, I put it in a document. I've got like three documents, historical context, word studies, this and that, all the other things. And much time as I can spend, I'm thinking about it, praying about it. Help me bring it together. I want to see what we need to see. Amen. You're still with me, brother. Thank you. You, you, you know what? It's a miracle. Amen? <laughs> Revival, physically, spiritually, mentally is what we need. So why do this work study? I mean, if you have a concordance, you can do the same thing. Interestingly enough, I found a little thing. Why do a, a word study that someone had done this nicely on the Internet, so I just stole it off the Internet. <laughs> this is their PowerPoint, not mine. But why do it? Because English words today have meanings that foreign that are foreign to the meaning of the original words, and modern versions sometimes misdirect students away from the original meaning, and mo most Bible versions use transliterated words like apostle or baptism, which are not translated. So it helps you uncover whether or not there's an error. For instance, in the King James Version, it says that in Acts 12, 4, uh, Easter is there. Do you think the word Easter actually belongs in the Bible? No, it's really the word Pascha, which was for the Passover which reminds you of the quattrodeciman problem way back when, when they said, look, we never will have Passover fall on the same day of Easter. Remember that big controversy and they fought about it for centuries? Maybe not, but that's part of the historical context of that passage. Word studies help us avoid making a wrong point based upon assumed meaning of an English word. Don't use an, uh, Merriweather and Webster dictionary when you're studying for a sermon. Don't do that. If you get up in my class, you're fired. You're, you're, you're not even going to make it through AFCO if you do that. Goodbye. No, I mean, gently. You know, we'll send you to the army or something. But no, we have got to come up higher with that, okay? Um, use, use like the concordance. Like, for instance, it says here in Second Peter that God's people are supposed to be peculiar. What does that mean? Weird? No, it's like a chosen generation. It's like a, a, a possession, a heavenly possession. It doesn't mean like peculiar, like, you know, like me. It means... Peculiarly like a possession. Or scarcely, it says, they'll scarcely enter the kingdom. That means they, they don't just get in there willy-nilly. Willy -nilly. There there's a process. It doesn't mean they can't get into the kingdom. So you see what I mean? It helps. Locate the English word that you want to study using the King James Version. And, um, you know, like, for instance, the word destroy. Look up the English word in the Strong's Concordance. 
Go down the list into the Bible verse that contains the words you want to study and take note of the number to the right of the entry. And then notice what you'll see. I'll show you this here. I don't want to go through all this in depth uh, except for you, you see all the numbers and then you finally get to the, uh, this, all this gobbledygook stuff and you have to figure it out. So first of all, you have the original letters in Greek, kataluo, and then you have the transliteration into English, kataluo, and then you have the pronunciation, kat al o So when you get out front and you go, kataluo, people go, oh, wow, he knows languages. No, you know how to use your concordance. You're not fooling me, but you might have fooled them. So pronunciation, and then the definition comes next, to loosen down, disintegrate, and then they have this little weird sign. You see this little weird sign right here? After the definition comes the translation. How was it translated? Catalua, it was translated to destroy, to dissolve, um, to all those different things. And that little sign, the little dot, looks like a little smiley face without the, yeah, well, that, that circle's not around it. That's just for illustration. But it's dot, dot, dot. It kind of looks like a, a, a face without a mouth. Uh, turn to the side because they have neck problems. And right there um, is, is where you go to the translation. So then write down the Strong's definition, the original Hebrew Greek word that you're studying, and compare that with the other places where that Strong's number is used in the Bible. And you can go through the Bible and you can find then how it's used um, by different uh, people that use Strong's numbers in their works, like, for instance, Strong's and Vines and Barry. These are all lexicons that then show you their nuances on the word. And look, all this is done faster on a computer, amen? What I used to do in 40 hours, it now takes me 10 hours with a computer. And there's so much you can do in infants. So Macintosh computer, eight hours, okay? <laughs> that wasn't actually part of the presentation either. So number step six, write down the different English words used to translate the original Greek Hebrew word. Destroy, dissolve, be a, be a guest, and lodge, come to not. And you see how they're used in all the different parts of the, of the Bible. And then you have to weigh it out. How was this actually used? How could it be used here? And sometimes this is where we make big mistakes because we don't know what we're doing. Um, but I'd rather get you to this point and have you make these mistakes than not try <laughs> so I can live with that. You understand what I'm saying? So you're getting into it. You're digging into it. Oh, by the word, every single word the Bible says is spirit and it's life. So this is like having a Holy Spirit time. You might say, oh, that looks boring. Oh, man, that's exciting. Sometimes you'll study a word and you'll just go, that is a powerful word. Some of you are saying amen as though you do this, and that's great. Step number seven, compare the meaning of the English word in your Bible with the original definition of the Hebrew, Greek Hebrew word. Church, is it a building? Is it a sprinkling? Is it a preacher? You know, and of course, baptism is not a sprinkling. You can tell that I didn't make that slide. So reference works, I'll put these on the website that you can go to. These are all the reference works, some are on the, on the uh, internet, that use those Strong's numbers for the Bibles and for the concordances. And if you get those Strong's numbers, then you have an access to all of these areas of study. And man, this is like going through a gold mine, you know, parsing the words. If you really get into this, then go to the seminary. So Hebrew word studies, Greek word studies, all these different things. Um, all right, stage five. 
analyze the theological context of the passage. We looked at the historical context, theological context. You know, in other words, what does it mean in the big picture from the context of the entirety of Scripture of Christ, of Christ? What does this mean? What does this passage mean? And the things, be strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the things which you have heard from me. Among many witnesses, the same commit to others. What does that mean? Well, it's in the context of Christ. He witnessed to his disciples who then went, who then went, who then went. And the whole idea is this gospel of the king will be preached to the whole world as a witness, right? And it's in that context that it's a life or death issue. Paul realizes that they need to turn the world upside down like it says in Acts chapter 17. All these thoughts come in and you make this theological statement in your mind so that you're, you're seeing what the intent is. Does that make sense? Now, how many can see that this is just hard work? Just hard work? How many think it's a good work? So it's a good work. Important. Stage nine, consult the commentaries on the passage, including Ellen White, and make any needed changes. Look, when I get to this place in my study, when I get to this place in my study, you know what I usually do? I usually say, hallelujah, Ellen White is a prophet of God. It might have taken me 40 hours to come up with what she says succinctly in two sentences. But still, I say praise God because I just realized, you know what? I'm happy to be corrected by Ellen White, myself personally. But many times as I do this work, I mean, I can't tell you. Ellen White's writings are so scripture saturated and you would never understand that until you do the work I'm talking about. Once you start doing that work, guess what you're going to see? Ellen White is a prophet of the Lord. And you're just going to go, whoa, I am so thankful to be a Seventh-day Adventist. I mean, it, by the way, I'm going to talk about that instead of the health thing, I think, uh, tomorrow night, if that's okay with you. Is that all right? I mean, you owe me one, right? You owe me actually a couple because you, you, know, you know what we were talking about earlier. So, um, <laughs> okay, what I'm going to talk about tomorrow afternoon, just as a, you know, a minor thing, you might want to be there too as well, or maybe you'll never come back, I don't know. Are we friends? You're sitting right here. Is that because I'm not in this room? Okay, so anyway, what I'm going to talk about Ellen White and how to use her in terms of your study more fully. But just a couple slides now. I'm going to talk about my family and how half of them became Seventh-day Baptists and the others became Seventh-day Adventists and how the Ellen White factored into that and what happened over four generations. So if you want all the scoop, come. So go to the White Estate and look up. This is what I do. Go to the, the, the head page there and you'll see on this left hand. How many of you have gone to this page before? And then you go down and you can find you know, search writings of Ellen White. You click on that, and then it says, you know, do the full text search or whatever, and you go Timothy. You know, you want to go down to the Acts of the Apostles. I, I put in the text Timothy, and then this is what comes up. And I say, oh, wow, lots of options. But what specifically is dealing with this? Well, I see the section right there. Acts of the Apostles, the final arrest, Paul before Nero, his last letter, condemned to die. And I read that, and I'm telling you what, those are powerful chapters. And they help sophisticate my historical context. They help sophisticate my theological understanding. They help sophisticate. And they also, I mean, I was so blessed to be in a church for 13 years where like there was five people that had CD-ROMs and computers every time I was preaching. And after the sermons, they would give me like printouts. This was wrong, 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 wrong. And then I learned I was being whitewashed. So, but 
what I discovered through that process was that 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 washing of the water of the word, the spirit of prophecy, was actually solidly in the word itself. I just had not been doing my homework. Look, people that study, oh, I'm getting on my lecture tomorrow. People that study Ellen White, they have done studies of this. They come closer to Jesus Christ. They study more of the word than people that don't in the Adventist church. And they did all of these studies. It is so important to not neglect that. Don't say, oh, I, 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 I pride myself on never looking at Ellen White. You know what you're saying? I'm stupid when you say that. <laughs> That's what you're saying because this person was in the Word for 70 years. You know? Amen? Amen. <sighs> I was preaching a little bit to the choir. Number 10, after this, summarize your findings. By the way, this is why I tell people in my little preaching class, which we do, you know, three-credit class at AFCO, um, is that as you're going through all this stuff, always be looking for potential outlines for the text. Because if you get right here and you have no potential outlines and it's Friday night, you've got like 50 pages and don't take them up into the pulpit tomorrow, you know. Don't, don't walk up front and say, my friends, the fruits of my research <laughs> in 64 volumes. <laughs> You've got to have a plan that is developing along the same line. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Could be anywhere. I did this last night in the midst of pain in the middle of the night. You should be thankful for it. <laughs> Brother, I want you to talk to him. Take, take care of him. All right? I'll work on that, okay? That's next army. I, I, I can't do everything I want. So write out, summarize your findings, write out the exegetical idea, the purpose, and the outline of the passage. And by the way, can you see why this needs to happen like Tuesday, Wednesday? When I was a preacher, I preached five sermons, or three to five sermons a week. So I constantly had this going on. Everything I looked at was related to those things. But I had to decide... Unfortunately, I didn't decide this soon, but it's best to decide Sunday or Monday about that text and start the work of, of the, this process. How many can see that? The doctor here. Doctor, don't laugh at nurses. They support you. All right, brother. So, but how many can see you need to get started on this? And you guys, it, 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 I have to keep you awake here, but this is the most serious stuff I'm talking about. It's serious stuff because you want to be telling people what God's word really says. Now, at the same time, don't stay in your office all week because, I mean, with this, you could stay there for centuries, right? Let me, <laughs> this brother, and this guy is the doctor of theology, too. He knows what I'm talking about. Let me tell you this. There's two things I want to say to you right now since I have your attention. One is, you do the best you can with what I'm talking about here, right? But equally as important as finding out what the text originally meant is finding out what the people you're going to talk to need. You don't need a preacher that stays in their office all week. How many of you have never been visited by a preacher? All right, see, some of you know that that's not good. How many of you think, are, are you happy? I've never been visited. Do you come and hide yourself? No, it's because no one came to see you. And see, you, the preacher has this job. You have this job if you're preaching or you're studying the Bible with people. You have to exegete the text and you have to exegete the people that you're going to be 
preaching the text to. In other words, you have to study the text and you have to study the needs. And the beauty of preaching is it brings those two together. Right? I, I studied the needs of this group. And last night, I realized that I had to moderate some of my presentation, which was actually a sermon on 2 Timothy. And now I had to break it back and say, how did I arrive there? Because some people sitting on the front row to the third or fourth generation here wanted to know how that was done. Amen? So, um, summarize your findings. Boy, that wasn't related to that. Number 11. Translate the exegetical idea into the homiletical idea. In other words, it's not just Greek and Hebrew and all that, but this is now the how you're going to preach it. Homiletician, homiletics just means preaching. And transform it into an idea that can be a memorable sentence that will stick in people's minds. So I came up with this sentence, and I actually preached this sermon at the AFCO graduation, the last one. Be strong, pass it along, and live like you don't have that long. You like that? You don't like it. That's why you struggle with it. I had like 10 different things, but I liked it. Be strong, right? Pass it along. And remember, you don't have that long. So that was my thing. And I said that like many times during the message. It was kind of the rooted thing because I was planting that in the mind. But that took, you know, 30 hours of work to come to that. You're saying, why? It seems simple to me. Well, good. Maybe you should be a preacher. Number 12, translate the exegetical purpose into that homiletical purpose statement. In other words, what does God desire to accomplish through the sermon and the hearers today? If you don't understand what you're trying to do, you probably won't do what anything, you know? Hewitt aims at nothing and hits it. I can't remember what I was going to say. How do you say that sentence? He that aims at nothing will probably hit it. So you got to make sure you know what you're doing. So what was my answer? God desires to inspire people with a sense of urgency, a sense of mission to spread the gospel with boldness and power. That's what I wanted people to get out of that. They were graduating from AFCO. I want them to go with that idea. How many think that was a pretty good purpose statement? And then you start looking for the language. Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. So he's doing his homiletical work, exegetical work. The preacher sought to find what? Acceptable words. And so this is the wordsmithing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find acceptable words that will do that justice. But look, there are some people that go overboard with words. There are some people that go overboard with this. And you begin to think, what are they trying to prove? That I'm dumb and they're smart? Have you ever heard that in a preacher? You're going, no, thank you. I don't like all the runs of words. That can be self-magnifying, um, right? Because notice what this says. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. In other words, when people get done, even though your words are wonderful, you got to remember that you don't have that much time and they don't have that much time, right? And when the message closes, you want them, Dave, to have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ at any of your message, yes or no? Amen. So we are almost done. This was last step. Decide what form the sermon will be based on. In other words, is it going to be inductive, deductive, narrative? 
And then what I did was start with a narrative introduction that went through that historical context that made the book come alive, and then I developed a deductive outline. I didn't decide that at first, but that's what really flowed together. And then expand it with all the illustrations and application and the narrative. And then finally prepare that introduction and conclusion. And uh, rehearse the sermon before you get up front. Now, usually I don't do all those steps. <laughs> like, for instance, I'll tell you sometimes, this is, this, I, I tell you what for sure I get done. I have to know for sure what God was trying to say back then, and I have to know for sure what he's trying to say now. If I don't get those two steps done, I just feel terrible. If I, I, if I don't have any illustrations, but I just have that, I'm cool, because I know if I get up front, he's going to bring me the illustrations, and he's going to help bring the application. I've seen it happen again and again and again, but I don't like it. I like to have those done. The doctor's nodding now. We're back together. The doctor and nurse are here. So, Yes. I will put these notes. How many of you feel frustrated that you don't have all these notes in your meaty, tiny digits? <laughs> I'll, I'll put these online for you, okay? Because you're in the Army. Has that been helpful to you? Yes. By the way, have sermons changed your life? Yes. And look, are you thankful for those who labor in word and doctrine? Are you thankful for that? Yes. Are you thankful for the ones who behind the scenes are doing that work? Man, every time you say, well, what's the preacher doing all week? <laughs> now do you know? Write the preacher a note right now and say, thank you for ministering in word and doctrine. Are you going to do that? <laughs> You're not going to do that? Look, I'm telling you, if you, have a, if you have someone that's preaching and teaching you, those that they're worthy, it says in the scripture, a double honor. They really are. And I thank God for the ministers in my life. The one I heard the most was my father. Good preacher. I got in so much trouble that my mom said, you must go with your father. And my father preached five times, like three to five churches on the weekend. I heard the sermon three to five times. I attribute that a lot to my preaching ability today. And then I got in trouble. I remember once he put me underneath the pulpit because I wasn't getting along, and I had to stay under the pulpit for a couple weeks. And I remember those messages the best. Amen? <laughs> but no chastening seems pleasant at the present time, but afterwards yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And I'm thankful for a dad that would not just allow me to get away with stuff. He believed in church discipline, and he exampled it in my case. I remember he knew the longest hymns in the hymn book. Remember the saying that says they sang a hymn and went out? He would have them sing a hymn, and I would go out. And when I came back in, I was always a new man. Amen? All right. So how many of you got something out of today? You kind of know how to go about that. Well, let's pray together. I know it was a practical thing, and I wish that it would have been more inspirational, it was more instructional, but let's pray together and just ask the Lord to bless what we've learned. Father in heaven, we're thankful today that you... Um, you came, and it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, you came preaching, teaching in their synagogues, and healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people. And it was so effective, your work, that they came and they said, we want to listen to you. And you gave that wonderful sermon on the mount. It really was a sanctuary message that showed how we need to move from being salt and light to being built on the rock 
And that rock of the sanctuary was, of course, the law of God you want to put in our hearts. And so thank you, God, for coming, being a preacher, being a teacher. Thank you for those that here that want to follow you and understanding the ministry of the word and understanding doctrine, applying to their own lives and to the lives of others through your spirit. And so we commit ourselves to that end and to the end of our text, that we would be strong, O oh Lord, strong in the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we would be faithful men and women who would commit the things that we have heard among these many witnesses to others also, so that you could come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.